0: You're listening to Red Flag Radio. My name is Ros Ward. I'm the host of the podcast, and I want to acknowledge that the recording of this podcast takes place Uh, as it always does, on Aboriginal land, land that was stolen and that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. My uh, co-producer of the show is Liam Ward on the dials in a different room (laughs) from me, trying his best, and I'm sure you all appreciate he's been trying to make the sound quality of these recordings in ISO as good as possible, Mm -hmm. Um, but obviously it's not going to be as good as it could be when we're all back together again. So we will be as soon as we can be. (laughs) Um, And if you want to help us out um, by supporting the show financially, patreon.com forward slash red flag radio podcast. The topic for discussion on this episode actually um, made me think about the introductory music because the voice in the introductory music, Mm -hmm. and we've mentioned this before, is the voice of Leon Trotsky, Person that we are going to be focused on um, in today's discussions, and that's a broadcast that he made in 1930, trying to uh, reach out to people um, around the world by audio recording. It must have been a record or something that just got like sent out to people. Pretty incredible. Um, so obviously, we have you know we don't think Trotsky is awful, otherwise we wouldn't have put him in our opening theme music. Uh, so the show today, um, we're going to be talking to Emma Norton and Luca Tavan, who are both uh, socialist, revolutionary socialist activists, one in Sydney, one in Melbourne at the moment, and um, about kind of the legacy of Trotsky in a way, and this idea of what Trotskyism is all about, because it's sort of one of those topics, and maybe I'm a little bit um older than these two in terms of things that come up in online discussions about socialism and communism and some of the debates that happen in forums that I'm uh, not a part of. But, you know, I'm I'm working towards a TikTok account <laughs> any, any day now, but I don't know if there's much Trotsky on TikTok. But he does come up, um, I'm told, Emma, in some of these spaces. So why do you think it is and sort of how does that happen Um, that people are talking about Trotsky and Trotskyism, considering he died in 1940 Mm. and he's not on TikTok.
1: (laughs) I can't vouch for whether he's on TikTok or not, but um, yeah, I mean, there's Trotsky the man who obviously did some pretty cool things and helped lead the only successful workers' revolution in history and uh, also led the fight against Stalinism and hopefully we'll get into that a bit later uh, but I think a lot of the time when we hear the word trot or Trotskyist bandied about on the left people aren't really necessarily referring to all these internist and debates about Trotsky himself there's kind of a whole narrative conjured up by the word Trotskyist uh, which I think is often meant to belittle and demonize people who are like principled revolutionaries and Marxists um, and a an example that has kind of been with us for the last few years that's not on uh, TikTok or the internet but is, on, uh, is in Britain in the Labor Party um, with the rise of Corbyn. And a lot of the people in Labor, in the kind of bureaucracy of the Labor Party who hated Corbynism spent years, the last few years, blaming like Trotskyist interests for the rise of Corbyn. I think it's a way of insinuating that Corbyn isn't popular because Labor supporters are sick of, you know, neoliberalism and Blairite uh, crap, but that, you know, there's an unrepresentative, sinister minority of infiltrators who've entered the ranks of the Labor Party and have managed to, like, pull the wool over people's eyes um, and convince them that these kind of left-wing fantasies are actually possible. And I think that's the kind of... um, scare tactic that a lot of people uh, to our right are using when they conjure up the image of Trotskyists and Trots. Um, You know, it's a very useful thing when you want to make a more right-wing argument that might not be that popular uh, to just kind of conjure up this conspiracy theory instead. So I think other than that, it's also a cipher for a bunch of debates on the far left um, about reform or revolution, like what does socialism actually look like? You know, obviously there's lots of people who look to uh, Stalinist or kind of semi-Stalinist regimes around the world um, as real socialism uh, rather than workers' democracy. And I think also the question of what kind of party we actually need to rebuild a socialist left. Should it be broad and electoralist or should it be a kind of um, smaller uh, minority of revolutionary Marxists? So I think all of these debates are sort of part of the uh, the use of the word trot and the, you know, um, calling on Trotsky's uh, legacy.
0: Mm. And there are reams and reams um, of yeah. books and essays and opinion pieces and blogs and stuff written about Trotsky. Um, I was reading one of the um, biographies or sort of political biographies of Trotsky and the person writing it, um, Paul LeBlanc, was saying that it's sort of every six months a new proper sort of tome-length um, piece is issued about Trotsky. So he does clearly continue to be a figure who inspires people to write books for some reason. Um, and people associate Trotsky, I guess, and their set of arguments about whether, <coughs> you know, being a Trotskyist is is good or evil, basically, there's not much in between, <laughs> on starting from the Russian Revolution and sort of um, his role in that, the outcomes of that and what happened next. So maybe we should start with Russia and what role Trotsky actually played in 1917 and maybe in the lead up to that. Luca, do you want to say a few things about that?
2: Yeah, well, I think in a lot of ways um, the story of uh, Trotsky's kind of transition towards uh, revolutionary activism and Marxist politics was pretty similar to a lot of people that grew up in the, kind of uh, space and time that he grew up so a lot of people he was um, he grew up in actually quite a small town quite away from the um, big cities where the action was at in Russia in southern Ukraine but was very influenced by the kind of rising tide of workers struggle that started to emerge in Russia in the uh, latter part of the 19th century so I think it was in about 1896 or 97 um, in his town that reports started coming in from the cities from Moscow and from um, St. Petersburg of the first kind of mass strike that had been launched by um, workers, mostly in the textile industries, um, that was so electrifying in that it was one of the first major challenges to the Tsarist regime, first mass kind of organized activities of workers that news of it just spread across the entire Russian empire, including to um, where Trotsky was located in a kind of rural backwater. And it was inspiring enough for him to convert himself to uh revolutionary activity and um, est- start to establish some of the first workers' organizations um, in the southern Ukraine. Another, I guess, uh, part of this story that's quite familiar for uh, revolutionary activists in this period is that it wasn't very long before Trotsky ended up um, in prison as well. I think it was, he was about 19 when he was first imprisoned and exiled to Sub- Siberia and spent um, a good part of his early adulthood there till he was about 23. Um, later, Trotsky actually, I think, uh, quite true to his uh, style of bravado, uh, boasted that he quite enjoyed that time because it was the first time he could really read subversive literature without having to worry about um, Zara's police, um, you know, looking over his shoulder. But like a lot of people, when he decided that his kind of political education um, has had been satisfactory, he uh, put himself into a wagon, covered himself with a bale of hay and kind of escaped back to the city so that he could get in amongst the action. So um, I guess it gives you a sense of that time of what a tumultuous period it was for revolutionaries and how rapid people's political education could be from, you know, one minute just starting to think about how to change the world to being drawn into the fray of worker struggles, persecuted by the state and coming out of it um, quite a steeled revolutionary. So by the time he was in his mid-20s, he'd already been through, um, yeah, quite a variety of different experiences on the um, the revolutionary left and had started to, I guess, clarify his ideas about the potential for uh, revolution in Russia as well. Mm.
0: And so, um, yeah, so he was involved, obviously, um in the 1905 revolution in Russia. And I guess just in terms of the early stages of his political development, like the main thing he was convinced of, first of all, which he stuck with for the rest of his life was Marxism. (laughs) And we should be clear about that, that Trotsky was a Marxist. Like he was a Marxist in the kind of classical Marxist tradition. And as soon as he was convinced uh, to start reading Marx, which he sort of didn't do before he said he, you know, When he said he was definitely not a Marxist, he hadn't actually read any Marx. And then he was convinced to read Marx and then he was like, oh, wait a second, this is brilliant. That's my politics now. So he was convinced about that. He got active, as Lucas said, in the workers' movement. And then we'll kind of skip right into 1917 because I think we want to talk a bit about sort of his legacy and what happened after that. But he's most well-known in the popular images of, you know, in the army general's coat leading the Red Army in the Civil War. But he did a lot more than that, um, although that was obviously important in the revolution, defending the revolution. So, Emma, can you say a bit more about his role kind of during the revolution and in October and so on?
1: Yeah. Well, just if I can slip in a cool fact about Trotsky, uh, it's that he was convinced to become a Marxist by... Uh, He was a Narodnik originally. He was really into the kind of peasant rebellion, populist movement, Um, the people who tried to assassinate Tsars and stuff like that. And he was eventually convinced out of that and to be a Marxist by his future wife, uh, Alexandra Sokolovskaya. Probably screwed that up, but yeah. Um, And he was, uh, like Lucas said, participated in the revolutionary movement up until 1917, but it wasn't actually until 1917 that he joined the Bolshevik Party. So prior to that, he had... Uh, disagreed with the Bolsheviks on a series of questions on, you know, what kind of party to, uh, to build and so and so on. But he was a Marxist the entire time, and he fundamentally uh, agreed with uh, and was one to eventually the Bolsheviks' position that the working class had to actually take power in 1917. And he was one of the major uh, figures who actually helped organise the seizure of power by the Soviets. And this was a really democratic affair, like every um, Soviet meeting of soldiers and workers uh voted to basically seize power. And this had been a demand that they had been placing on the Bolsheviks for some uh month. Uh and and you know, the uh peasants' representatives as well had thrown their lot in behind uh the seizure of power by the working class in the cities. So he uh, orchestrated that, which is pretty impressive, and then went on to fight uh, and lead the fight against the white armies. Which was basically the def- defense, the absolutely necessary defense of uh, that workers' revolution, because you know when you when workers rise up and overthrow the capitalist class in one country, um, that capitalist class isn't going to just sit back and accept that. Particularly, the old czarist regime did not just sit back and accept that, and um, as well, like all of the country, all the capitalist countries of the world decided they had to crush this fledgling socialist state. So. Uh, it was Trotsky who actually led the successful defence um, by the Red Army of the Workers' Revolution. So that had, you know, a whole series of pretty horrible consequences because of the exacting tolls that it um, it uh, reaped out of the working class and uh, out of, the, you know, production, like production basically collapsed uh, in the course of that war, but... Um, but yeah, he did play a really important and inspiring role. I think in the first and only successful workers' revolution in history.
3: Our comrades across the
0: world. have got to say, the Russian revolution was defeated by a counter-revolution and the fact that the revolution didn't spread in the rest of Europe. And you know that we'll have other discussions um, on this podcast about the Russian Revolution in more detail. But Trotsky becomes notable in his opposition to kind of what comes after the revolution, and that's really, um, in in some ways, what he's best known as uh, leading that opposition to Stalinism. And that's, I think, what people understand most commonly to be what Trotskyism kind of is about. So what, what motivated or what was key to Trotsky's opposition to Stalin? It, clearly wasn't every Bolshevik that took up his same position as him. And he was very, you know, active in opposition to Stalin. So why did he do that? What was that about, Luca?
2: Well, I guess in a way Trotsky in the early 1920s, after the end of the Civil War and some of the historical details that Emma has just gone over, Trotsky's starting to grapple with a question that, a few of the leaders of the Russian Revolution, people who were the most committed to the political vision that it laid out of a radical working-class democracy, were trying to come to terms with, which was the fact that, um, in many ways, a lot of the things that they had accomplished in 1917, um, so a grassroots worker democracy from the factory floor up that could dictate kind of every area of life, um, a form of democracy completely opposed to the sort of passive bureaucratic parliamentary democracy that we're used to today, um, that a lot of those gains had been... um, undermined and eroded by the very process of trying to defend the revolution from external attacks. So it's a very heroic exertion that um, the Red Army kind of, I think, um, engage in against 14 different armies to try and um, stop them from basically being crushed and their counter-revolutionary dictatorship being established. But in a lot of ways, it's um, at the expense of cannibalizing a lot of the institutions of the revolution itself. So all of production within Russia has to be Basically, directed towards a defensive war to stop workers being invaded and slaughtered. The basis for an actual socialist economy, which is a society of plenty and abundance where you can actually provide for everybody's needs, was an impossibility because of the kind of economic collapse that came with that mobilization. And the Soviets, which were the yeah, radical working class democratic institutions that the revolution had uh, given birth to, um, as a result of the devastation created by the war, effectively became uh, hollow shells. Um, There was never a a, a legislative act um, that was signed off in this period that said the Soviets don't exist anymore, but in practice they ceased to function because the vast majority of workers were either exerting themselves um, to try to defend the revolution from foreign threats or just were focused on survival, you know, figuring out how am I going to feed myself. Um, It was not a space that allowed all these opportunities for people to be involved in daily mass meetings, figuring out how they want their lives to be um, run. So... The effect that that had in um, in Russia was that there was increasingly through the early 1920 s a kind of bureaucratization of the state. Um, more and more um, what had been the Bolshevik Party, now known as the Russian Communist Party, came to substitute itself for more and more of the functions that the um, workers councils the Soviets were unable to fulfill, and more and more clearly started to take on elements of um, essentially a, a new layer that had counterposed interest to the working class, um, so not just um, a kind of uh, bureaucratic set of institutions to help workers along, but a layer of people whose life conditions were quite divorced from ordinary workers, who had a different mode of thinking, who um, um, had a stake in, I guess, maintaining the status quo and material privileges. And so Trotsky starts grappling with um, what is the nature of this rising bureaucracy and how can we fight against it and re-energize the kind of radical working class democracy that this revolution was um, all about. And I think the starting point for his critique of Stalinism is that how do we deal with um, the The limitations that we're coming against up against as we try to transition towards a social society, and these new forces that are acting as a quite a conservative layer to stop um, progress towards um, the kinds of things that we want to achieve.
0: So what did this look like in terms of what Trotsky was doing then, Emma?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, he organised um, a section of the opposition to Stalin's um, increasingly kind of bureaucratic, uh, rule over Russia, and uh, I mean they were in a very tricky situation. So he didn't have all of these answers, or and couldn't uh, magically make the situation better. Like Marxists aren't idealists; we don't think you can just will your way out of a situation where uh, a workers' democracy has basically collapsed because the whole basis for it, which was the working class, which needs uh, industry to be functioning, needs factories to to exist. Um, had collapsed. And there weren't all these fast and easy answers. But Trotsky did try to provide some. Um, He argued for a revival of working class democracy in any way that they could. Um, And he argued against some of the more uh, bureaucratic kind of extremes and authoritarianism of the, uh, the Stalinist clique. He also argued against the right who more wanted to just kind of open up uh, markets and, you know, just res- restore capitalism uh, in order to get themselves out of the immense social crisis that Russia was plunged into. I mean, yeah, people should go and look at the statistics if you want to have a sense of just how horrific this was. And it wasn't because of the revolution alone, it was because of, you know, the imperialist war that Russia had basically lost, uh, the treaty that they had to sign with Germany that signed o- signed over a whole bunch of their territories, um, the blockade from basically every other country on earth that stopped basic materials going into Russia. So the level of social crisis was immense. And within that, uh, it was possible and kind of on some level necessary for a bureaucracy to usurp the um, democratic power of working class people. Uh, I don't think there were all these other options out of it other than a counter-revolution, which the, you know, the Bolsheviks had successfully faced off under Trotsky's leadership in 1920 and 21. Um, And Trotsky, you know, put up a good fight, um, him and his comrades, and he was eventually exiled. And he really was the the leader and face of that opposition to Stalin. And so he also became like the, you know, enemy number one of the Stalinist regime, like the – Bad guy. Um, and Trotskyists, I think, uh, you know, people who agreed with Trotsky's critique of Stalinism and uh, often, you know, eventually split the various communist parties around the world, um, they were seen as, yeah, enemy number one as well and really demonized by both the Stalinist regime in Russia and their kind of uh, communist party allies around the world.
0: Mm. So people get this perception of Trotsky that's not only influenced by you know, right-wing pro-capitalist ideologues, but also the Stalinists who want to kind of smear his name and his legacy, and um, that was kind of like their project from that period in the nineteen tw- mid nineteen twenties until today. They're still doing it. Um, so, what? But what was happening then, Luca, in terms of just a reminder, I guess, about the size and the scale of the international communist movement then. Um, from the 1940s or 30s really onwards um, in relation to the size and scale of the kind of international people who still wanted to um, fight for the original Bolshevik revolutionary position that Trotsky held on to. I mean, it's a pretty epic (laughs) task that, that, that was facing the Trotskyist movement.
2: Well, absolutely, and I think that's one of the reasons why um, Trotsky sustained opposition within the Soviet Union until the point where he was physically driven from the country and kind of harried across the globe was so politically important, is that it actually made it possible for uh, workers who still had, uh, I guess, some illusions that the Soviet Union represented a social society and that the Stalinist bureaucracy um, could represent their interests, uh, to receive those arguments and to it played a real role in defending, I think, a genuine revolutionary and democratic conception of, of Marxism. And without that kind of fight, it's hard to imagine how long it would have taken for those pieces to be uh, picked back um, up again. And so in many cases, if you look at, it's one of the great kind of difficulties of the 1930s and 40s, um, the period where Trotsky's groups really tried to assert themselves, is that uh, the workers' movement was really dominated by two major forces. Um, on the one hand, you had the Stalinist Communist parties, which, increasingly um, ceased to be revolutionary parties and were transformed really into foreign policy wings of the Soviet bureaucracy, Um, institutions that could be turned to whatever line the Soviet bureaucracy wanted that they thought would help to advance their international interests. And then on the other hand, the reformist social democratic parties, um, which, you know, in some ways uh, took a different flavor, but had a similarly conservative worldview of allying themselves with ruling classes and maintaining the status quo rather than trying to Fight it. So in a lot of cases where the Trotskyist movement started to cohere, it was um, often with individuals or very small groups of people who um, were kind of one to the arguments that Trotsky made that there was an alternative to Stalinism in Russia and that reviving the real traditions of the Russian Revolution uh, was possible. I think it's worth just quickly acknowledging that this wasn't just um, kind of in the West or in countries outside of Russia, though, but that Trotsky also won working class support within Russia for a period before um, that was crushed. So there was something estimated between... Ten and 30,000 um, workers who were under the influence of the Trotskyists wanted to fight against the bureaucracy and restore genuine working-class um, democracy. And one of the things I came across that I thought was quite inspiring was that on the day of Trotsky's exile, um, he was first exiled to Alma Adda, which was kind of on the outer reaches of the Russian Empire itself. Um, his exile in 1927 had to be delayed by a couple of days because demonstrations of thousands and thousands of workers and students just rushed onto the train tracks and physically blocked them to stop the person that they saw as, um, yeah, representative of the, the revolution that they'd fought so hard for um, being chased out of the, the country. But from there, I guess the, the movement kind of had reverberations across the world from more groups of people breaking with Stalinism in the United States, eventually catching on here in Australia, um, as well as I think some quite inspiring examples of quite mass and serious working-class organisations in places you might not really expect, like in Vietnam and Sri Lanka, which is maybe something we could talk about a little bit.
0: Mm yeah let's talk about some of that stuff internationally, Emma. like what were some of the things that were going on for Trotskyists around the world?
1: Well, I think the first thing to say is that it was hard going. it would have been really, really tough. Um, the communist movement had rightfully grown to be absolutely mass because workers were really inspired by the successful um, workers revolution that they witnessed in in russia so um The Trotskyist movement was up against really massive parties and parties that were quite brutal towards Trotskyists. This was not like a comradely debate or something. This was a regime in Russia, which was consolidating into um, what I would call like a state capitalist regime that exercised its power in the same way that every regime everywhere does which is you know you've got your foreign diplomats you've got your uh, guns and tanks and your economic power as well that you influence um, you use across the world and one of the major kind of foreign policy outlets or vehicles that the Russian regime had was the communist parties Um, and so they had a direct link to like millions of workers around the world which is pretty incredible And so, if you're a Trotskyist dissenter, you're not like seen as part of the same movement or something. They were pretty vicious. I think some examples from America give you a sense of this. So, uh, the way that the American Trotskyists actually split from the communists was uh, that one of their leaders, uh, Jim Cannon was basically at the um, at one of the conferences in Russia and like found an accidentally translated uh, copy of Trotsky's critique of Stalin's first five year plan and realized immediately like this is contraband basically you can't you can't distribute this except in total secret so he uh, him and a Canadian comrade like um, basically escaped with it back to uh, back to the United States and uh, he would let individuals into his apartment and they would have to read the entire thing there. And if, if, you know, once they were convinced, then, um, they were part of this like secret underground Trotskyist, uh, clique. And it wasn't uh, for some weeks that they actually split from the communist party. So, and they did that because they knew how repressive, um, the communist party was going to be towards them. And that continued, like, it was really hard for them to even have meetings. You know, you try and put on a meeting about why Hitler is a bad guy and, the communist movement internationally should stand up against uh, his rise in Germany and you'd have communist party thugs come and actually beat the shit out of your uh, your speakers and stuff and try and shut it down. So, so there was a lot of um, difficulties uh, for the Trotskyists, but there were also some serious uh, successes. Like, you know, Trotskyists, I think, had the right attitude largely to – One of the fundamental questions, which was, what actually is socialism? It's not this horrible authoritarian regime. It's workers' democracy. Uh, And so often they had a very good attitude to how you intervene into uh, workers' movements. And despite being a small minority, they were able to make some gains. So they led uh, really fabulous strikes in uh, America, particularly in Minneapolis, it's my favourite example. I don't know if I have time to go, to go into it, but uh, basically they led what ima- amounted to a civil war of truck drivers and the whole working class of Minneapolis against uh, the bosses. And they won and then they went on to like organise 11 different states across the Midwest. Uh, and this was all led by a tiny band of Trotskyists. They started off as 30 people in that city.
0: And all of that in the um, context of the 1930s and the Great Depression where... You know, you think about the relevance that now in in terms of when when there's a massive crisis of capitalism, is there anything workers can do then? Yeah, that period of the 1930s in America and what the Trotskyist organisations did is really um, an excellent example of that. And Farrell Dobbs is one of the people who's written about that. People can um, look at the Red Flag Bookshop uh, for some of those titles about that period. So, Liam, I think you... Um, have done some work around the history of the Vietnamese Trotskyists. Is that right?
3: Uh, A little bits and pieces, yeah. And uh, uh, I recommend, there's a fantastic book called Revolutionaries They Couldn't Break, uh, which should be essential reading because it's, the Vietnamese Trotskyists organised a party, you know, a revolutionary Marxist party that was actually bigger than than the Communist Party, than the Stalinists. And there's not many examples around the world where you can think of that, you know, where the where the communists in the 1930s had to, they had to figure out how to relate to this other force that was bigger than them, which was the Trotskyists, you know. Uh, they won, at one point, they won uh, a majority in um, the Saigon City municipal elections. You know, like this major city, the biggest industrialised city in Vietnam. Um, and uh, they led a, a series of amazing strikes, uh, were involved in... Um, Involved in the sort of earlier uh, the periods of the uh, movement against uh, French colonialism. Uh, a lot of those Trotskyists in Vietnam were actually won to Trotskyism because they were from like petty bourgeois families who went to, and sent their kids off to study in France, met the Trotskyists over there, came back as Trotskyists. Uh, it's a really amazing and inspiring history. Um, unfortunately, like so much of our amazing, inspiring history, it also ends in tragedy. Uh, and the what happened to the Trotskyists in Vietnam and how they've been written out of history... Uh, was that they were slaughtered by these uh, communists who, um, you know, who turned on them. And uh, by, certainly by the end of, uh, I can't remember exactly when the killings happened, but uh, a whole series of these very heroic, important figures who should be more widely known to the history of revolutionary Marxism were slaughtered uh, at the hands of the Vietnamese Communist Party. People like Tatu Tao, uh, for example, who, uh, people, residents in Saigon for many, many years, or Ho Chi Minh City, I should say, but residents in that city for many years uh had a little street uh just near Bintan Market, which people might know Bintan Market. Uh they locals there still call that Tatu Tao Street. Uh it despite the attempts of the Stalinists to erase that history. It was a very important figure in, in that city.
0: Emma, did you want to
1: add anything to that? Yeah. oh uh, well I mean there's yeah, there's other inspiring uh kind of groups and Movements. But another thing that's important is, you know, Trotsky was alive obviously throughout the 30s. He was murdered uh, by the agents of Stalinism in 1940. Uh, and throughout that whole period, him and his followers, um, I think, did a really valiant job of correcting a lot of the mystifications that Stalinism was sort of doing to Marxism uh, and also analysing this brand new situation that was developing, um, both you know, Stalinism, the rise of Stalinism in the USSR. Like, how do you explain that? What is that? Um, How can you go from a workers' revolution to a brutal, uh, murderous regime? And also uh, analysing a bunch of the revolutions and mass movements that happened. So Trotsky wrote a lot about the Chinese Revolution in um, 1925, uh, the uh, Spanish Civil War as well, he commented on, and the um, Popular Front movement in France. And in particularly, I think one of the most important thing contributions he made uh, that other you know socialists also wrote about, but um, was about the rise of Hitler and fascism across Europe and the need for revolutionaries to uh, actually stand up and fight against that and to um, to unite sections of the working class regardless of their political um, leanings to a fight a kind of existential uh, fight against fascism. Um, Whereas the Stalinists uh, kind of fell down, I think, on all of those those particular examples, I think gave really terrible advice um, and totally uh, misanalyzed uh, a lot of those situations that developed. To the German communists, they said, uh, don't worry too much about Hitler, you know, first Hitler, then it's our turn. Uh, he's just exactly the same as all the Social Democrats, you know, some pretty crazy stuff that did not at all arm the working class in Germany to fight against this, like I said, existential threat. Um, to the Spanish uh, revolutionaries, the Spanish Communist Party as well, He, uh, uh, Stalin and the Comintern gave some pretty horrific advice. So, yeah, I think that was another really important contribution that Trotsky was able to carve out some critiques of what was what would otherwise have been a really dominant... Uh, movement saying we are the inheritors of the Marxist tradition and this is you know um this is Marxism so I think he really saved Marxism for uh for those of us not that every single thing he ever argued was right but um you know kind of saved it through that period yeah
0: and that period I mean the stories of him just writing letters to comrades all around the world and organizing little groups of Trotskyists there might be like four people in a country or something and he's writing to them and they're asking him questions and he's like have you thought about this thing and this thing and they write back and he just continues these um correspondences with people on and on just trying to figure stuff out and I think sometimes you can kind of think oh you know people think that Trotsky just had all the answers but he didn't but he had a lot of really good questions (laughs) and um And definitely his foresight around fascism is a huge legacy. I think that's good to pull out. Luca, do you want to jump in?
2: Well, yeah, I think it's worth remembering for that reason that it wasn't just the bureaucrats in the Soviet Union that breathed a sigh of relief when um, Trotsky was finally um, kind of harried to his death and killed. It was actually respectable, polite, often, you know, middle-class, small-hour liberal opinion in the West Um, that was equally relieved about it. And I think that's worth remembering because these days um, a lot of these uh, people who are more influenced by Stalinist politics, particularly that you'll find on the internet, think that um, making jokes about Trotskyism and ice picks and all of that represents some kind of edgy radicalism. But for the last several years of Trotsky's life, he was defending revolutionary politics in a time where there was actually an alliance between the bureaucrats in the Soviet Union and the hypocritical kind of so-called democratic uh, powers in uh, the West, uh, Stalin was time man of the year, I think twice in the late uh, 30s and the early 40s. He was Uncle Joe during the Second World War um, and the ruling classes in the you know, so-called democratic countries, they were quite sensible to, um, in some ways, to cozy up to the guy because they recognised that what Stalin and Stalinism really represented was uh, part of accommodation with world capitalism and the stabilisation of another um, another ruling class that would rule over a working class um, that was politically atomized and unable to fight for itself. So um, Trotsky always, um, even at the times when he was the most isolated and, you know, arguing to the smallest groups of people, always saw that work as incredibly important because it represented uh, some holding on to the idea that there can actually be, um, yeah, opposition to ruling classes all across the globe, faith in the ability of workers to transform society, and I think it's that stuff today that... Uh, means that Trotsky and Trotskyism is still the ire of um, all sorts of people that have conservative worldviews from Stalinists to uh, party political hacks in the British Labour Party um, to kind of uh, reformist podcasters whatever they might be that um, fundamentally don't agree with the idea that workers should run society which is what Trotsky fought for through his life.
0: So Emma then, once the Soviet Union has collapsed and like sort of Stalin is long gone, Trotsky is kind of long gone, why are people still having these debates today? Like why does it still matter to understand the legacy of Trotsky, um, his ideas in the light of sort of there isn't really a communist party of that same nature anymore?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I think the politics of Stalinism are still pretty alive and well, despite the fact that the the parties that were there sort of receptacles for um, you know most of the 20th century have pretty much collapsed. But I think that tendency to think of socialism as, uh, like I said before, a centralised bureaucratic regime that acts on behalf of the working class uh, rather than being their democratic expression Uh, I think that can still be quite popular, um, partly because it seems more possible than what we're talking about and what Trotsky uh, was talking about. Um, It's, you know, a lot easier to point to horrible bureaucratic regimes around the world than it is uh, to point to, you know, a global internationalist working class revolution that um, I think is actually what we should be fighting for. So I think for that reason, there's still, you know, plenty of Stalinists who like to crap on about ice picks and stuff, uh, as Lucas said. Um, and then I think the other thing is there's a kind of hostility amongst, uh, people I would call reformists or social Democrats or people who want to build kind of broad, um, electoralist parties who are more interested in kind of, um, compromising with capitalism and making it a little bit better and reforming it slowly, uh, or putting someone in power who can reform it slowly, uh. I think those people see Trotskyism and um see you know small groups of organized revolutionaries as a bit of a foil for them. Uh, it's you know like i've I've been quite amazed recently to uh, hear you know various other podcasts, I think even on Chapo Trap House um sort of slagging off Trotskyists. It's not because they even necessarily come into contact with Trotskyists that much, but it seems to them like Trotskyism, Uh, being a principled revolutionary, building a small but serious uh, revolutionary organisation and trying to win people to Marxism, they see that as an alternative to their project, which for the most part for all of these people is, um, yeah, building a broad kind of electoralist front that, I mean, in the case of Americans, (laughs) like outrageously tries to uh, place itself in the oldest and most horrible uh, capitalist party that the world has ever known, the Democrats. So... I think, yeah, it kind of comes up more than you would think, not necessarily because these people have read all of this history about Trotsky himself, but, it, yeah, the, the Trotskyist movement, despite having been small in most places, did um, successfully, I think, you know, well, did kind of represent uh, revolutionaries who wanted to organise a Marxist party, basically, um, you yeah.
0: And Chapo Trap House uh, people, if you're listening, happy to have you come on Red Flag Radio and debate it with us. Um, so, Luca, when you uh, when you get called a trot, which I'm sure you've experienced, do you take it as a badge of honour or how do you feel about that? Is that something?
2: Um, yeah, I have no problem with it, really. I think in a time when... Um, as Emma alluded to, Stalinist politics are not a dominant force in the world. That is the main question that the left have to clarify. I don't think it's the first term that we have to look to to orient ourselves around the main questions. I think really today the kind of fundamental question on the left in terms of how we want to build in the future is the question of reform or revolution. Can we transform things through the capitalist state and parliament or do we need to mobilise workers from below to overturn society? Um, But to be a revolutionary today, I think you can't really orient yourself without... You know, recognizing that we owe a debt to the contributions that were made um, by Trotsky through a period, you know, that was one of the most difficult for uh, defending the real kind of, uh, yeah, beating heart of revolutionary Marxism. Um, So, in that sense, I would say that I would wear it as a badge of honor and that the contributions that the Trotskyist movement have made through decades, through thick and thin, you know, big and small organizations, big struggles, and, you know, little ones like even the things that we do here in Australia, campaigning against the government, fighting for climate justice. Um, putting out radical ideas that, um, yeah, those are all in in some ways we stand in that tradition today, and that's something to be proud of.
0: Mm. Emma, any final thoughts? <laughs>
1: um, yeah, I I would I I just I think Trotskyism is not the most important badge to wear. Um, But most of the time when people call you a Trotskyist, they're not saying that you agree with every single thing that Trotsky ever said. They're uh, criticizing you for being a principled and staunch revolutionary and trying to convince other people to be the same and to go into every single uh, movement of the oppressed and workers' movement uh, with that final goal of overthrowing capitalism for good and establishing um, a workers' democracy that's what they're actually criticizing. So yeah, in that sense, I would uh, wear it with a badge of honor.
0: Cool. That's been a really interesting discussion. I hope it's inspired people to um, read a bit more about the legacy of uh, Trotsky, Trotsky's um, life in the Russian Revolution and afterwards and some of the things he wrote. He's an amazing writer. If people haven't actually read Trotsky's work, um, The History of the Russian Revolution is a must read. It's long, but it's worth it. It's good. (laughs) Um, And you can get all of those things at Red Flag Books. And you're listening to Red Flag Radio. Thanks, Luca, Emma, Liam. We have a world to win.